Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 183. This week, we talk with Sam Julien about strategies for upgrading AngularJS to modern Angular and other frameworks. Samsung crams 30 terabytes into a two and a half inch drive. And the web gets less secure yet safer. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week we have Sam Julien. He's the founder of UpgradingAngularJS.com and a C-sharp and JavaScript developer in Portland, Oregon. He's also the co-organizer of the Angular Portland Meetup. When he's not coding, you'll find Sam outside hiking and camping like a true uh, good or Oregonian, right? Is that my pronouncing that right? <laughs> Oregonian. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. I'm thrilled to be here. It's an honor to be here, guys. Okay, cool. awesome. And Carl, Slack is back. Yeah, it is. So uh, we had a problem with the auto-inviter, and uh, the problem wasn't the inviter itself, uh, but uh, a problem with the registration process within Slack. But we've got that figured out. So if you want to be part of our Slack uh, channel and kind of talk to us outside of the uh, show, uh, go to slack.msdevshow.com to sign up. And then uh, the URL, once you're there, is msdevshow.slack.com. Very cool. And what do we have for the comment of the week? Uh, we got the comment this week off of Twitter from GL Beatriz. says, if you don't know what blockchain is, this episode by MS Dev Show is excellent. And we've actually gotten quite a few uh, compliments on our blockchain episode. A lot of people co uh, commented on how they finally understood blockchain or they at least understood what its uses are. Uh, finally were yeah and you know that that's one thing that's a huge compliment for us we really like to hear what you guys like about the show so we can bring more of it and if we can help take something that's a, a, as obscure as blockchain and make it so a few people understand it you know that makes our day yeah people go crazy for blockchain <laughs> yeah and if you want to get mentioned on the show like GL Beatriz, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com comment on facebook youtube or stitcher we really like those five-star itunes reviews Cool. And you found some interesting news stories this week. So the first one here, Samsung crams 30 terabytes. That's not that's not a mistake of SSD into a single two and a half inch drive. So uh, did did we order some of these, Carl? <laughs> I, I don't know what our budget is, but I'm guessing that probably blows <laughs> yeah. our budget. I, yeah. I don't even have to look at the price. But, you know, you know, as developers, we always love all that extra storage, you know, all the extra high end stuff. And this is just one of those uh, cool, geeky, nerdy things to geek out on. Did they so they put 40 and they put 40 gigabytes of DDR4 RAM in there for the cache? <laughs> it's crazy. What? There, there's I, I'm sure there's a there's, there's I bet you there's I don't want to say a huge market for this, but I'm sure there's a market where, you know, there's like people that are will just like auto buy this because this is, you know, they need this for some crazy, you know, use case that they have. You know, you know, I heard there's a billionaire. What was it the the guy who owns like the Dallas Mavericks or something that like uh, any TV that came out that was bigger, you know, than the previous one, <laughs> like he had it like a standing auto order. Like, yeah. I just always have to have the biggest TV. That wasn't Mark Cuban, so, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban, that's funny. Um, I actually saw this is totally off topic, but he was, uh, I think it was on Reddit. He was doing like an AMA, and people were asking him like. 
you know, he does have like billions of dollars and they're like, you know, when you're on Amazon, do you do the same thing all of us do? You know, you're like trying to like figure out like, okay, this product is like a few dollars cheaper. And he's like, absolutely. <laughs> so that's, that's still, that's still a problem apparently whenever you're a billionaire. Um, okay. The next one, better check all that third party CSS you're using. There's a CSS keylogger. Yeah. So what you can do is, um, when you, uh, you can have a, C or a CSS rule to essentially pick up on when you type in a value. So like when the input type equals password and value equals A, you can have that load a background image. And if you have an, an, a background image for every character that you're interested in, you essentially get a, you, uh, you get a, a request. pull against <laughs> a request against that image for every letter. So you can tell what somebody's password is. And you'll know it's a password because the type is, is password box. So... <laughs> Uh, that's pretty crazy and definitely opens up a, a lot of interesting scenarios. Yeah, that is, that is pretty wild because I think to your point, you uh, are actually, I guess the article, the whole point or the, it's actually just a tweet, but the whole point is that you, as long as you can get some CSS on a page, which is like way easier than injecting anything else. Cause it's, you know, I, I would think it'd be considered like fairly safe. Um, and if you have any kind of package and you're including some CSS, nobody would think twice about it. So just another attack vector. Uh, Speaking of attack vectors. Yeah. What's the next one here? So if you are running KDE, so a version of Linux that uses KDE, um, you can actually run arbitrary commands just by plugging in a jump drive that is named uh, a certain way. <laughs> so if you have like uh, some code that's in like uh, double back ticks or in like dollar sign and parentheses in there. So you could do like dollar sign parentheses touch B and parentheses and that'll create a file called B just like the touch command will. So just imagine you could uh, easily format somebody's drive, uh, remove everything. You could do all sorts of crazy stuff with just some Linux uh, commands. And yeah, essentially the what's going on is – Oh, go ahead, Carl. Go ahead and explain it. Yeah, essentially, what's happening is it's uh, when it sees those that pattern, it's being it's interpreting uh, shell commands and executing them. So you're okay if you're running like GNOME or or something else like that, but uh, if you're running KDE, definitely be careful what uh, random thumb drives you're you're plugging in. Yeah, it says that it's not an issue in the Linux kernel itself. It is specific to to KDE. So I think I think that part is important. I wonder I wonder that's really weird. I wonder what they're actually doing with that. It's open source. I'm sure somebody's looked at it. Yeah, it looks like it's for Plasma, the the desktop yeah. thingy, and if you update to past five point twelve, you're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, so make sure you stay up to date. And I, you know, it's just terrifying plugging in any USB device. Like, don't plug in anybody else's USB devices um, that that aren't known to be a hundred percent safe. You know, it used to be, and I don't know if they still do this, but you go around conferences and you could pick up like ten, twenty USB drives, and uh, yeah, just don't, just don't do it. And those things suck anyway. <laughs> um, a secure way. Yeah. Ironically, our last story here is a secure web is here to stay. <laughs> <laughs> so starting with Chrome 68, any site that does not offer HTTPS will be flagged as not secure. Mm -hmm. And and that's actually pretty huge because I know that uh, especially like a lot of smaller organizations or nonprofits, uh, they're not necessarily always plugged in on keeping their website up to date or offering TLS or, or stuff like that. So um, I think this is going to have a pretty big impact, especially amongst those uh, smaller businesses that do have websites like this. It's going to be 
kind of a pain when people go there and when when you have a user that sees not secure, mm-hmm. they they might not know what that means. Yeah. And uh, this is going to be pretty huge. But at the same time, I think it's going to make a, a big push for people to get HTTPS everywhere uh, implemented. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I have mixed feelings on this. I, I think it's I mean, we are trending toward this future where finally everything will be HTTPS. Um, but it's also like, it's still a pain in the butt. <laughs> you know, I always it's see these, not easy. yeah, I always see these things like, Oh, just do it in this two lines of code. Yeah. If you have like this very specific setup, um, uh, but even, you know, like on the MS dev show, like you, you got a certificate, Carl, and you sent me all mm-hmm. the stuff and I'm like, I don't know how to do Like I was trying to convert everything, like convert to this, to that. And then here you had multiple options for what to download and you had just given me a format that like couldn't be converted to the format that we actually needed for Azure. And it depends on where you're hosting. So there are like five different formats. If it was literally like, here's a file and like put it somewhere or, you know, do something like it would be way easier, but there are different like packages. I mean, I don't, I don't even fully understand it. And the whole thing is confusing me because there's like different containers for the, for the security, for the certificates. And then some have passwords, some don't. And then you get like this private key, public key, which I understand what those are in, in like principle, but in practice, like, I don't know where to put things. And um, yeah, it's to me, unless I'm just in need, I don't know. Do you have this all figured out, Sam? Maybe, maybe you're just smarter than me. <laughs> I don't know if I've got it all figured out. The one thing I'll say is that thankfully, uh, I'm sure you guys know about Let's Encrypt. Yeah. The the free one. Well, uh, I've had really good success with Let's Encrypt on both Heroku and DigitalOcean. Okay. Now it's like a very basic um, security. It's 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 not you know. There's lots yeah. of different options out there, but I mean maybe just to mitigate uh, what this article is saying about you know making it the default. Hopefully, people can at least set up Let's Encrypt on something like a DigitalOcean or a Heroku or, or whatever there. I think let's say as Let's Encrypt gets adopted more, uh, more platforms will make it easy to support. I don't know if Azure's made it easy yet to support yeah. Let's Encrypt, but that that might help at least. Yeah, it's partially my fault because like Let's Encrypt, I, you know, I looked at it when it first came out and, um, you know, it just didn't. It was it didn't, really hard to set up. In the yeah, beginning. it was really hard to set up. It didn't do what I wanted to do. So, you know, I guess it's my fault because I was sort of like, okay, let's encrypt is difficult. And I never reevaluated that. So I will, I will reset it back to, uh, I have to look into let's encrypt. <laughs> so I'll look into that and maybe I'll report back on the next episode if it's, uh, if I can do all that with Azure. And I'm also using, I'm using, uh, Docker containers in Azure, um, but it's still, I'm still running it under an app service. So I'll have to see, uh, I'll have to see if app services support it. Um, I'm sure there's some articles out there. So I'll take a look at it. Okay. So let's talk to Sam. Cause that's why we're here. Um, so, you know, you reached out cause you, 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 you have some experience like upgrading angular applications and building some tools to upgrade angular applications. And, um, my, luckily I, I haven't had any like significant enough projects where I've had to upgrade them. You know, it's always, I've always been kind of like stuck in this position where, you know, I just kind of burn it with fire and then I start over. Um, but obviously that's that, you know, most projects can't, you know, they don't, they just don't have that luxury. So I've just avoided the inevitable. Uh, but like, what, what is it about angular that makes upgrading an issue? And, and is it, I mean, when we say upgrading, is it usually like version one that people are upgrading from? Yeah, so so for people who aren't, you know, embedded in the Angular world like I am for, for years, basically what happened was uh, 
So Google had this version of Angular that was 1.x, which is now being referred to as AngularJS. Um, and it spread like wildfire uh, throughout the enterprise world. Lots of .NET shops and Java shops started using AngularJS uh, because it, it did two-way data binding and it was really easy to use. Uh, but then what ended up happening was a couple of years ago, Google introduced Angular 2, which is now just called Angular, confusingly enough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it's a drastic departure from AngularJS. And so a couple of years ago, there really was no set upgrade path for this. And so a lot of us out there who were maintaining these big uh, 1.x applications were super frustrated because we're kind of like, we kind of felt like we were left hanging out to dry because we had all this code that we had worked so hard to put out there that was then going to be kind of left in the lurch with the new version of Angular. Uh, now, luckily, Google has listened to the community and now there's an upgrade library called ng upgrade and there's a sort of a prescribed path. And that's sort of what drove me to this whole issue was just the work I was doing in my day job and just being really frustrated mm. with the whole lay of the land, I kind of set out on this mission to build out more resources, uh, build out some educational materials, and just kind of get out there and spread the word that now there actually is sort of a rubric of should I upgrade or shouldn't I? And if so, how do I do this? Can I do it you know, one step at a time or, or all that? So that's sort of the, the main situation because there's a ton of code out there that's in AngularJS 1.x that folks are going to have to decide what they're going to do with it. Mm -hmm. And now I kind of understand why they renamed it, right? Because uh, version two and up uses TypeScript. Because at first I'm just oh, yeah. like, I'm like, why did they, I'm like, oh yeah. Because they act, they literally drop like the JavaScript portion of it. So it actually makes, the naming makes sense technically. <laughs> yeah. They really should have just totally renamed it. They really shouldn't have tried to, yeah. I think they were just trying to keep the continuity of the branding and everything, but yeah. It is what it is. It just makes uh, Googling for answers really difficult now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what can you do? Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, ng-upgrade. What, what is that and what does it do for us? So ng-upgrade is, is really great. It's Angular's official library that sort of lives in between Angular 2 and AngularJS. Well, when I say Angular 2, I'm just going to be saying Angular from now on because it's actually at version 5 and version 6 is in beta. But ng-upgrade is a library that you can use to have AngularJS and Angular running side-by-side -side in your application. And what you can do is uh, use this library to either downgrade or upgrade different pieces of your application. So, for example, if you have a, a service that's going and getting calls from your API and it's written in AngularJS, but you have a new Angular component that needs that to needs to access that service, you can use ng-upgrade to wrap around that old service and make it available to the Angular side of your code. And that works for components or other shared parts of the application. And it makes it so that at the end of the day, you can gradually step-by-step -step migrate your application. You don't just have to start from scratch and burn it with fire, <laughs> like you said. Uh, yeah. uh, you, can, you can do it little by little. And you said that works both ways, so I can wrap uh, Angular service and expose it to Angular JS, and vice versa. Yeah, and that ends up being actually the easier way to do it. I found um, the in a lot of situations, what I found is that the easier thing to do is, you know, 
you kind of start from the bottom up, find things that have the most things dependent on them. And what, so let's say it's a service, for example, that in Angular, a service is just something that goes and gets usually data from an API or something like that. So you take your service, you'd rewrite it in Angular, Angular 5 or whatever, and then you can use ng-upgrade to do something called downgrade the injectable, downgrade the service. And that makes it available to all of your Angular JS code. And that's super easy because all you have to do is add a couple of lines of code. And because ng-upgrade is written in Angular, Angular 5, uh, then it just sort of patches it in. It has access to both libraries and, and it uh, is actually super easy to do it that way. Yeah, I, Carl just upgraded his Angular and his lights turned off. <laughs> I just noticed that, Carl. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> technology, the motion sensors aren't picking him up. That's hilarious. <laughs> Go ahead, Carl. So how do I start uh, planning for an upgrade, even with this tool? Yeah, so there's there's several different factors that you want to take into account when you're looking at your application. Um, first, you want to look at the size of your application, obviously, uh, is it a, both the size and the structure. First of all, if you've got things like, I know in, for example, in the .NET world, there it was super common to use an old version of Angular kind of shoved into an MVC application as sort of just kind of a glorified jQuery. Like those applications, you don't need to worry about. It's really the, the spas, the single page applications that you want to even look at these kinds of things. So you want to take a look at that. How big is the application? Um, what's the file structure? How many dependencies there are? And that way you can figure out kind of the, the biggest question is, should I upgrade? Uh, and then if so, um, should I do it in kind of one big rewrite or should I do it iteratively over time? And a lot of that depends on the life cycle of your application. So if you've got an application that is sort of lying dormant and isn't doing any any new stuff, you might not actually need to upgrade it at all. There is a long-term support schedule for AngularJS um, that you could just kind of leave it indefinitely. But if you are doing feature development on it, if, if you're going to have to continually maintain it, then it's going to make sense for you to upgrade it at some point. And whether you can do it in one shot or iteratively, uh, it just depends on your your sprint cycle and and how much time you have. I know for me in in my work and and for a lot of people, you you don't really have the luxury of taking a few months off and just rewriting an application. You know, it's like this huge amount of technical debt yeah. that you you just have to tackle. And so you kind of just look at that and you plan out um, how you're going to iteratively do it. And luckily, it is possible to break it down into um, step-by-step pieces and do it as long as it, as it takes you. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then how does Webpack uh, factor into this? Cause I know like it, it seems to be like the hip way of taking all your files and, you know, cramming them all into one bu- or into, I guess, different bundles and getting them to the client. So like, how does that factor in here? Yeah. So one of the biggest things about going from angular JS to angular is sort of going from this, the old world to the new world, the old world being things like script tags or um, concatenating files together with a task runner like Gulp or Grunt. But the new world is this world of module bundling, ES6 modules, that kind of thing. And 
that leap, whether whether you're going from AngularJS to Angular or rewriting in something like React, you're going to have to make that transition because that's sort of the way that the, the front end world has gone now is with module bundling. So Webpack is a big part of that. And it's the it's sort of the chosen uh, bundler for the Angular community right now. Uh, the, the Angular CLI uses Webpack underneath the covers. And so one of the things that we have to do when we migrate an application is whatever build process or lack of build process we've got in that application, we're going to have to set up a Webpack build process to bundle up our files, compile the TypeScript with the TypeScript compiler, and you know set it up for whatever environments that we've got. So that can be sort of intimidating to people. Luckily, there's actually a lot of great resources out there on learning Webpack and module bundling. Um, one of my favorites is a book by a guy named Juho, uh, who's in Austria. He runs React Finland. It's called Survive.js. It's like the best best book out there on Webpack. So there's there's a lot of resources out there, um, but that is how it sort of plays into it. Yeah. Okay. So when we're looking at like the back end, are there any changes we need to think about there as we're making these modifications in Angular? There's not unless you want to do some extra stuff. So you can you can totally do all of this on your front end without really impacting your back end at all. The only thing that happens is once you've got Angular 5 or 6 up and running, you could take advantage of things like server-side rendering or uh, moving to observables on your back end or, or things like that. But those are all completely optional. You don't, you don't have to do any of that. So the back end basically is kind of out of the loop when it comes to this this whole thing. Okay. And then what about like automating some of this upgrade process? Like have you written some tools around that or or is it guidance? Like what what can you do to help here? Well, so I myself haven't written any automated tools. Um I've I've come out with a course on migrating applications called upgrading angular js, but there are other folks in the community who have um started to write tools for this. One just off the top of my head is called ng-lift. It's by a, a guy in Israel named Yuri Shaked. Um, and what that does is you can run your templates through this little tool and it'll convert some of the syntax over for you. Um, things like uh, ng-repeat gets translated to ng-4 in Angular things like that. Um, so that's sort of, there's nothing sort of official from the Angular community. It's more just as more and more people start noticing the patterns in the upgrading, they're starting to write some open source tools. And I think that's great. I think the, the more people we can get doing that, the better. Um, so I, I know that uh, NGLift is one, I, uh, and I, I'm sure there's others out there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I know that like, package updating is always a nightmare. Is that an issue when we're going from like uh, AngularJS to Angular? I would say yes, insofar as it's just a front end ecosystem, just like everything else. So it's always, so basically it's always it's, a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Package updating is always a nightmare. I mean, luckily now you've got um, tools like Yarn, that are great for locking down dependency versions. And even I think the newer versions of NPM do that now too. Um, it, dependency management is definitely one of the most difficult parts of this process because 
we all know that over the years of developing an application, you end up like with 40 different random like jQuery plugins that you've shoved into this. That, that's over the course of one day. <laughs> that's not years. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, yeah. That's day one. <laughs> yeah. So there is a, sort of that. You, the, the only real tedious part of this process is making sure you're going through and being like, okay, do I, do we need this, this like random dependency or don't we? And sort of looking at one thing I've noticed is uh, a lot of what we had to do in angular JS with either with third party plugins or with sort of uh, different architecture patterns and stuff was sort of, we were trying to bend over backwards to make things work. And now uh, the, the front end world has evolved so much and the architecture patterns have been so settled, like, unidirectional data flow and things like that, that a lot of that stuff is just sort of out of the box with the with a framework like Angular. So hopefully you're going to be able to get rid of a lot of your outside dependencies and kind of brittle code. But yeah, that is an issue. You definitely want to be careful with uh, checking the versions, using something like Yarn to lock down your, your packages, and then seeing if there's like a, an Angular 5 equivalent of whatever... Um, package you've been using, um, so it's just one of those things you gotta you gotta grit down and do. Yeah, <laughs> but, I wonder if I wonder if yeah. Yarn makes it better because like npm. Um, well, I mean, it just seems an issue with packages in general. I mean, if I want to upgrade even just one package, like it causes this cascading, uh, you know, these cascading issues because then it's like, oh well, this package depends on this and it requires this version and and I don't know. Then I then I'm like, okay, let's just update everything to the latest. And it's always like, no, 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 you're not going to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, I find that being as specific as you can with the versions and then using something like yarn that has a lock file, it's the only thing that mitigates it. But okay. yeah, I feel like in any ecosystem, it's a kind of a nightmare. <laughs> okay. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications, supports all major programming languages and platforms, and integrates with your current development workflow tools too. There's a free 14-day trial, and it takes minutes to implement. So start resolving issues in your application and check it out today at raygun.com. And then there are a lot of people, uh, include, you know, I do have at least one application. There might, I might only have one. It was like a survey app I built for conference uh, years ago. Uh, you know, that's, that's on angular, uh, angular JS, I will call it. I was going to say angular view one, but I'll call it angular JS. Um, you know, I, do you think there's a lot of people out there that, that like really feel stuck on, on angular JS? I do. And I think it's because sometimes it can feel just so overwhelming to make the shift. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of why I'm evangelizing, for lack of a better word, because things are a lot different than probably a lot of people have when they looked at it a year ago or two years ago. Uh, there's way more of a prescribed path. And I've, I'm finding even from my own experience, a lot of the, the that feeling of over being overwhelmed is what I was saying that a lot of the stuff that we had to work really hard for in AngularJS, where we're sort of looking at like, man, it took me months to write this feature in AngularJS. How am I going to upgrade it? It's actually much simpler now in Angular. So um, I do think people feel stuck out there and, and not everybody does need to upgrade, but for 
people who are actively doing doing development and work, it is a lot easier now. I shouldn't say easier, but it's more it's more straightforward. Um, and so we're trying to build a community around this so people can get unstuck, you know. Mm-hmm. So when when people have Angular JS sites and they're looking to do an upgrade, are they in general sticking with Angular as a whole, or are people also looking at other alternatives? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends a lot on your team and your expertise, your team's expertise, what you prefer. So I find that, you know, if, if a team has a lot of developers who are already familiar with something like React or Vue, maybe it is more straightforward for them to just rewrite in one of those frameworks. Um, if, if you do have a, a lot of Angular folks, it's going to be easier to use the upgrade path just because you're not making, you've got that ng upgrade library as the intermediary. But for example, um, I know a lot of React teams prefer it because it's sort of more uh, lightweight. There's less abstractions. Uh, it's sort of just bare bones JavaScript, and, and they don't want to mess with TypeScript. They don't. They don't really like the the class, the object oriented approach that Angular has. And that's, that's totally fine. That's, that's their, you know, that's their expertise. But I do find that a, a lot of folks who are in the, the .NET world uh, or the Java world that are, you know, writing in things like C Sharp, it's going to, it's going to make sense. They're already using AngularJS and they're familiar with that object oriented pattern with classes. And it's going to be a smoother transition for them to go to Angular. So it, it, but yeah, I know I I do know other teams who have decided to just switch to uh, React or or another one. There's a great article that we'll link in the show notes. Um, that was an answer on Quora by a, a guy in the Angular community named Jeff Welpley that was sort of comparing when Angular versus React makes the most sense. Um, that sums up a lot of that really nicely. So you can take a look at that. Yeah, that'd be that'd be great to take a look at that because I mean that's yeah. that's the thing. Like I heard about Vue.js and. Um, I, I used it, I've been using it in a super simple capacity, um, you know, for some like really basic stuff. I'm really been using it just like some of the basic angular one stuff. Um, but for me, it's, it's just been, it's been difficult kind of getting it, my wrapping my head around the, the landscape and then making a choice. Cause I'm not working on one big project. I usually have like a couple small hobby projects and they all seem pretty heavyweight. And when I was doing it recently, you know, all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, what's yarn? What's webpack? Like these tools, it's still just unbelievable. Like how fast this stuff moves. I'm like, what NPM's not, not cool anymore. And, and uh, gulp isn't cool anymore. Like that was, it was just like yesterday that gulp was cool. And uh, so it's just been, it's been so difficult to keep up. Um, But I did want to, I did want to ask you like, um, you know, are there any, uh, do you have any good examples of like sites that you've helped convert or, or, or are you sort of disconnected from, you know, the, well, the people all, that you're helping? Well, all of, all of the work that I do is all internal. It's all, all of the jobs I've had have been for yeah. internal business systems, applications, things like that. So there's nothing really public facing that I've done. Um, but that's, that's sort of my target is, is folks who are in those sort of what I call workhorse companies of like finance, healthcare, mm-hmm. nonprofits, things like that. And that's why I built my course um, was so that I could, kind of hone in on those, those folks and, and help them go through the step-by-step migrations. 
That's awesome. Because yeah. the, you know, the best way to like really become an expert, I shouldn't say the best way, but one of the best ways to become an expert in something, you know, is to, is to teach people. And by writing these materials, I mean, that's, that just makes you, uh, uh you know, in my mind makes you an expert on the topic then. So that's, oh, that's it definitely, cool. uh, it's, yeah, it's a great way to learn. I mean, I made about 200 videos for the course and it's crazy <laughs> how many things, yeah. Uh, it's crazy how many things you do in programming that are just because somebody taught you and you don't know why. <laughs> and then, then you go to make a video on it and you're like, well, I guess I need to actually understand yeah. like what's happening in the API that I'm doing this. And so, yeah, I learned a ton about, uh, angular JS and Webpack and TypeScript just, just in shooting hundreds of videos for it. Yeah. That's very <laughs> so, cool. Yeah. Anything else that you think that we might not have covered that you want to talk about? Uh, no, I don't think so. The site's at upgradingangularjs.com. It's um, a couple hundred videos there for you, quiz questions, sample project. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to helping as many folks as I can. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, Carl, what do you have for the Azure pick of the week? The Azure pick of the week is uh, talking about Azure functions, and it's titled Understanding Serverless Cold Start. And uh, for those of you who haven't really gotten into uh, serverless, when when you kind of you know hit your endpoint for the first time, if it hasn't done that for a while and you're on uh, kind of a consumption plan, it actually spins up a VM behind the scenes on the fly. And this article details like the process that it goes through because it doesn't just like, oh, you need one. I'm going to go get one from cold storage. It actually has a few hot and prepared, you know, to kind of speed that process up. Uh, But it also compares that traditional consumption plan versus a dedicated plan. And these are always up there and waiting to run. And there are some cost differences between them. But if you need that performance to be hitting immediately, uh, it definitely gives you quite a bit uh, of a different experience. I know we use... um, the consumption ones for our scheduling page. Um, yeah, if we have actually, I, that... I moved all that. <laughs> oh, you moved it. It's all, it's all well, in Docker. Well, we now. did. <laughs> I said, of course, it's it really is. Docker. Docker, all the things. Yeah. So I, I originally took the Azure function. I actually ran the, ran the Azure function. I moved the Azure functions into a Docker container, and then um, I realized that that there was really no reason to use the Azure functions framework. It just wasn't adding any value. So I just simplified it, and I literally turned it into a Node.js uh, script that runs in a Docker container. So our our website is a static site running in a Docker container and the uh, schedule page, which most people don't see, it's really just for prospective guests. Uh, it, it, it figures out potential times that we can, that we can record uh, that calls into a separate Docker container running a Node.js script that communicates with uh, our exchange servers, queries iCal and converts it over and into JSON so that I can consume that on the page. It's really simple. it actually is it actually is pretty simple it sounds way more complicated than what it is it's literally just two docker containers and one talks to the other one through through the public internet so um i did want to correct one thing though because i think you i think you said that um if you're in a consumption plan and it has to basically go to another server you said it starts up a new vm um i think what you meant um at least my understanding is it needs to deploy to a new vm right because those yes because you're not you're not really thinking about the servers like there's a giant pool of servers somewhere where it deploys um what's interesting what i'm curious about is you know i think i think docker makes that deployment interesting because i'm not sure how they do it now you know you have like a little script and they somehow I mean, the reality is if you, if you're, if all of a sudden you have a million requests come in for your super awesome 
uh, you know, serverless function, uh, you know, like it has to get deployed to those machines. Like there's just a fact of the matter of getting it copied to those other machines. And that's why you get that, that cold start behavior. Um, I am curious if having that in a Docker container speeds that up at all versus just, you know, just copying the files. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm just kind of curious about that. Cause you end up with just basically one big uh, layer file instead of, you know, we know how NPM is. Um, I think it might be better with yarn now, but with NPM, like, oh, I'm just going to include these five dependencies and you literally will have like 15,000 files in there. <laughs> I, I think that contribute that probably contributes to the uh, to the cold start phenomenon that ends up happening. And the other thing I want to point out here is like anybody who's doing serverless has this cold start delay. There is no. Uh, at least I've never heard of like a magic way around it. Like it literally is just a matter of, I have to deploy code to another server and that takes time. Well, and it's not even necessarily a bad thing. Oh, what sucks. I have no delay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and again, it's, it's usually just in that hypothetical situation in my mind where you go from like zero requests to a million. And the only time that I've actually run into that, we've, we, uh, we've done IOT scenarios where you point, uh, you know, Azure functions at an event hub. And it's like, I have 10 million events that are sitting there and all of a sudden Azure functions, like, you know, it gets point, it gets connected to the fire hose and it's like, Whoa, like, you know, I'm going to need more than one server. And then it's like, well, two is not enough. Three is not enough. <laughs> four is not enough. Five is not enough. And then, it, you know, it just kind of balloons out of there. Um, that's really the only time practically speaking that I've run into that issue. Um, and then you also have a dev tip of the week. Yeah, we've wanted to get this one for a while, but for yeah. some reason or another, it's gotten bumped off the show. <laughs> and it's a Chrome ex- extension for Azure called Azure Mask. And what this does is it finds any uh, GUIDs or email addresses that's in the Azure portal and it blurs them. So if you're going to do like a screen share with a client or a customer or you're doing a screencast for something. Or even a presentation uh, can, at a conference. Yeah, if you're doing a presentation at a conference, anything like that, you can show your actual portal. So it even blurs it for you in the browser. Uh, That way people don't see those sensitive information that you don't want them to see, but they still understand, hey, here's all the other uh, UI of the portal that I need to navigate around. Yeah. And and you sent this to me the other day. My reaction was, why didn't we think of this? (laughs) It's so funny (laughs) because like I I was working with a partner and they kind of emailed me in a bit of a panic and said, Hey, we made this video and we're showing this information. Like, should we blur it? Should we not blur it? Like, what do we do? And and it's one of these things where that information isn't necessarily, I mean, there are keys and things like that that definitely should be blurred, but you know, like subscription IDs, it's like, uh, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I could tell people like the exact city I live in and I, you know, is it that big of a deal? Like maybe, maybe not, you know, it's one of those things. So this just makes it safe, you know? So you just, you don't even really have to think about it. You don't have to go and like post and like edit your video. So this could save, this could save some of our listeners a lot of time. So, uh, and Sam, we play a game on the show. I need you to pick, Ooh. I need you to pick a number, uh, like, you can pick a one, <laughs> uh, or just give them the next one. It would be easy. <laughs> I think you can pick a number between one and one. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm gonna go with one then. <laughs> oh, whew, surprise! Okay, 
Uh, <laughs> would you rather ride in a tight, small, closed box for one for a one day plane flight, <laughs> aka any flight? Um, <laughs> I'm looking at you, United. No, uh, or ride with pigs in the back of a truck for a two day trip. Um, how tight of a space are we talking about here? It says we talking about. I will. The, all the details I have are tight, small, <laughs> closed box. So I'm guessing. That so you can, you're in first class on Delta. Yeah, yeah, you're. <laughs> you're in first class. I'm gonna go. Can't really move. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go with the pigs in the back of a truck. I was born yeah. in Valdosta, Georgia, so I'm. I'm fine with that. Yeah, I was like, you know, the pigs are probably nice. That's probably fun, actually. Like that wouldn't be. Yeah, that wouldn't be that. Pigs and, are very nice, smart animals. <laughs> and I will say, just going off the, you know, I'll be very technical here. So it does say, so it's a one day plane flight, which is insane. So I'm guessing that's a 24 hour flight. Versus the other one says it's a two day trip. So there might actually be stops on the two day trip, right? Because the plane's not yeah. going to stop. Like that doesn't make any sense uh yeah so so yeah exactly yeah pig truck all the way yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> hashtag pig truck for life <laughs> and carl i need you to pick okay i'll just the, take the next one the number well no because there's some choice in this i need you to pick the number four okay <laughs> okay uh would you rather have a private jet and pilot ready to use whenever you like done or have yeah. parents who I think we did this one before or have parents who own a major league baseball team Yeah flights yeah private But th- do you have to pay for it I guess I guess I'm making an assumption here Like if it's literally like no matter what I can fly if I could just jump on it yeah yeah if I have to pay for it out of my own pocket no Yeah then then the baseball team Although then we could say, like, what if the baseball team was, like, you know, losing money and, like, nobody wanted to buy it. So, I don't know. <laughs> we need, we need like, the technical version of this. And, and apparently I got to get on top of ordering that book that has more of these it's questions. Probably still sitting in, it's probably still sitting in your Amazon cart. Come on. I, it's not that far along. It's in the wish list. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just the I, – I guess I was hopeful somebody would buy it for me. <laughs> so, okay. Very cool. So, Sam, uh, where can people find you? Uh, a couple of different places. My pr- personal Twitter is just at Sam Juline. My personal website is samjuline.com. Uh, the course is at upgradingangularjs.com. And I've also got a medium blog that I post supplemental articles on there. Like I, okay. I posted a big long article about uh, setting up ng upgrade for production with the AOT compiler. So uh, those are sort of the, the main places that people can get a hold of me. Okay, very cool. Yeah, that, that course. Um... Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really awesome. Uh, and Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer and you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Y So thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about upgrading angular. Cause this is a painful thing that I'm sure lots of people have to do. They don't <laughs> want to do it. So thank you for your service and helping, uh, people upgrade their applications. Oh, I'm, it's an honor to be here. And, uh, yeah, I'm hoping that the thousands of hours that I put into all this is going to save a lot of people a lot of time. That's, that's my main, <laughs> that's my so main too. goal. <laughs>